HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Rachel Signer. We'll talk to Rachel about Pipette, her new book, You Had Me at Petnat, a natural wine-soaked memoir, and more. I'm your host, Sam Ben-Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Straight out of D.C., Rachel Signer attended college in Virginia, headed to New York to get her master's at the New School, along with the intensive writing program at the City University in New York. She settled into freelance writing gigs while waitressing in Brooklyn, writing for various outlets including Vice, Vogue, Eater, The Guardian, and Wine and Spirits, before starting her own wine publication, Terra, eventually becoming Pipette, Pipette is a quarterly on its ninth issue and is an ode to natural wine and everything around it. Rachel just published her book, You Had Me at Petnat, a natural wine-soaked memoir. So, Rachel, the question begs to be asked, how did a nice Jewish girl from D.C. wind up in Australia with a guy named Anton Van Klupper? (laughs) <laughs> a baby girl and her own natural wine label and magazine. I guess we're going to get the answer to that soon, and I don't think I'm going to have to pull it out. All right, welcome to the Grape Nation, Rachel. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. I'm very excited to have you on because I love the book, and um, I have not read every issue of the magazine, but I've read a bunch, and I don't know where I was on that one. So, All right, so we're talking to Rachel remotely via Zencaster, our remote app. Um, Rachel, 
I'm going to ask you where you are right now, and I'm going to suspect that your answer is going to be better than anybody I've had in the last year. So where are we talking to you from? <laughs> I'm on our farm. I'm in the house, and um, I'm looking out the window, and there's the big shed, the winery. We call a winery a shed here in Australia. Um, is that the green one? No, that's the blue one. The green one, okay. if, if I crane my neck, I can see it. Um, it's just a little bit down the hill. Um, and around us, we've got some very baby, baby vineyards growing. In the distance, there's a slightly more established vineyard. And I can't quite see the veggie patch, um, but there's lots going on. So it's very rustic. Uh I was going to say vineyard farm, but I think it's fair to say we're talking like permaculture here, yeah. You know, which is really a convergence of, you know, it, it, what you just described is really permaculture, which is animals, vegetables, vineyards, right? Per permaculture is very specific, um, and it involves very like a, a certain way of growing things, um, and that's not quite what we do. But um, and we actually don't have livestock at the moment. We did have sheep, as you might remember from a certain yes. scene in my book. Um, but yes. so we do have a lot of biodiversity. We've just been planting um, dozens of olive trees. We we made our own oil from the existing olive trees, and it was so good. We decided to just kind of double down and just make enough oil that. We don't ever need to buy it and possibly that we can maybe sell a very tiny, tiny nice. amount. And we have fruit trees. Um, so we've been increasing the, the life and the diversity a lot. That's sort of what we've been doing in the pandemic is like right. improving the farm. So it's kind of less rustic and more productive and more kind of cared for than it used to be. Right. I remember reading that you would go to a friend's house or farm to get the olives. Now you're growing them on your property, right? Yeah. Well, they were on our property. Oh, um, they were? Oh. They're just kind of on the other side. Yeah. Um, but they those those are trees that Anton planted now probably eight years ago. Um, how long does it take to bear fruit? I think they took four or five years. They start out okay, very so small. Okay, you're, so yeah. you're ready to go. All right, so Rachel, I just need you to help me with one thing before we really uh, jump sure. into stuff. Um, give me a little background on your journey in life and wine um, that got you to where you are, but I want you to bring me to a certain point, um, which is your trip to Georgia which I think was a life-changing trip. And don't go into much detail before that, because the detail I want to get into, you know, Georgia involves Anton and, you know, changing life and all that. But, you know, just a quick trip to get me there, if you can. Sure. Um, I did not grow up in a family that emphasized wine or food, and it, they, they often sort of wonder how I ended up doing all of this. And my mom would say that it's because she grew vegetables and that m me eating her organic food straight from the garden primed my palate. And I, I don't know if that's true, but flash forward, I was 28. 
I was writing a novel. Let's not talk about the novel, but I um, was studying fiction writing and I was working a couple jobs to make ends meet. Um, so I waited tables at Renard. Uh, that used to be in the Wythe Hotel, was an Andrew Tarlow right. place. Lee Campbell was the wine director. So amazing, amazing people. Um, really? Like legendary yeah. Brooklyn? OG. I know. Well, they were like yeah. kind of amongst the first to really do natural wine. And um, it was just amazing. Like, I mean, we served Petnat instead of, instead of Prosecco, like most of the time. Or right. Cremant. Cool. I think we had Cremant. But so... I, I don't know what it was. It, it was the first, it was love at first taste. I wanted to know more. And I, I was very perceptive to the way that people were talking about these wines. Like um, Trevor, who probably you know from Discovery Wines. Um, Kirk was there, Kirk Sutherland. Who, Sutherland. Yeah, sure. is at, or was at Roberta's. But he was the coffee guy, by the way. <laughs> but like... Um, you know, and Lee, the way Lee talked about these wines, and I could almost visualize the people because they were so personified. And I was like, holy shit, wine is made by people? Like, I, that's radical. And then um, the, the, Lee has a background in political science, and she just loved talking about the culture and the battles of natural winemakers against the Appalachian system and how wine regions have transformed over times, you know, like um, there's this idea that a wine is a static thing and that's so incredibly wrong. Like it's a, a bottle contains all this history of change over centuries to get to a point where it has that label and it's, it's believed to be a certain thing. And I mean, as a background, having a background in cultural anthropology, um, but not having pursued academia, I was like desperate for something like that, something intellectual, but not to the point of academia. Um, and I was, yeah, I just fell in love. But um, the restaurant job right. didn't, it, it, didn't it brought all those elements to you. Wine brings you know. all of those elements together. Yeah. And natural wine has this added element of like kind of working against the grain and being an outsider. And that was really interesting to me. I really related to that. So I worked so, then. So yeah. Rachel, wait, not to interrupt, but what year are we talking about? Because what's crazy is you're going to tell me not that long ago. And, you know, for ancient, for, for natural wine in New York, I mean, it, it wasn't that long history. ago, but it seems like ancient history. When are we talking about it's so amazing how much it's changed. That was like the second half of 2013. And then 2014 was when I worked at UVA and when I started doing wine journalism. Would you say UVA was one of the early and first, you know, supporters of natural, natural wine? wine stores? Yeah. Yeah, totally. It was like UVA and Renard doing their thing in Brooklyn and I think probably Vine Wine and, you know, like a few other things. Right. Like Hotel Del Mono had natural wine too. Yeah, but Uva sold tons of natural wine. People would come from all around the city um, and just ask for natural wine. Absolutely. Right. So you work there, you said, right? Oh, yeah. I went in and I said I wanted to work maybe three or four days a week and they put me on six days a week all summer. Wow. Mm -hmm. So 
the writing part was something you wanted to do? Was it stimulated by wine and now you had a direction? I mean, so you kind of get exposed to natural wine at Renard's. You work around some great people. You go to the coolest natural wine store. How does the writing thing come about? I had done a few bylines in various publications about food from a sort of political Ah. perspective. So I'd been writing about food in terms of who has access to it or the farmer's market movement. That really interested me. And I just totally pivoted. And the first thing I I landed was Food Republic. Um, I knew an editor there kind of randomly, and he gave me a shot. So I became kind of their wine writer. And I I wrote about food as well. And then at some point after about a year, I asked someone, I was like, I feel like I should probably specialize in either wine or food because it's like I'm straddling these worlds and they both require a shocking amount of knowledge. And they said to me, there's not that many women that write about wine. And I was like, okay, I'll go for it. What were you aware then that there was zero or very little coverage of natural wine then? I mean, was were you was this what you were doing and loved, so that's what you were going to write about it, or you had this presence of mind that it definitely here's took a me, way? Yeah, it took me a while to even realize how important natural wine was to me. So I was pretty much happy writing about wine in general for a little bit. But um, I would go out and I'd just go to all sorts of portfolio tastings. But increasingly, the ones that I loved were like, you know, the Zevrovine tasting. Right. Or I, you know, I I, like... Jenny and Francois. Jenny and Francois. Like the the memory of going to Camille Riviere's first tasting for the first time is like burned into my memory. I think I was like sweating with excitement about all the wines. Really? Um, She was just on the show about a month ago. Oh, yeah. I listened. It's great. She's great. I love her. Yeah. Um, so you, you hit all that stuff and it just solidifies, you know, how you're feeling, what you want to do, what you like, right? Yeah, exactly. And I did find over time that I was getting told that's too niche. Could you write about something more general? And so I was starting to get a little frustrated, but I was also having the time of my life. I was getting invited to Oregon and the Finger Lakes and Europe. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I had no money. Um, I was definitely racking up credit card bills um, because nobody (laughs) pays you, obviously, for the when you go to these trips. Um, And then the article you write is you get paid $200. So it was it was going well. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I can I can tell you a turning point that's not in the book if you kind of want to know. But um, essentially, yeah. I I drove through the Loire Valley for a week in 2015, right. and I went hard. I visited four producers a day, which I do not recommend, and I met basically <laughs> all of my idols. Um, Laurent Sayard, Thierry Pouzelat, um uh, Hervé, um, not Hervé Suo. Um, no. no, he's in the other region. <laughs> right. Um, sorry. Hold on. Wrong. Who's the guy that makes Romorantan? 
Oh my God. I can picture his labels. My brain doesn't work. A lot of Don't these worry were, about it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But so, you, you were able to kind of go to the guys that meant something to oh you. Oh my God. And I was like, there were people using Georgian amphora in all throughout the Loire Valley. And I was like, that is a story. Thierry Puzelot getting Georgian amphora over to the Loire Valley and people using it to ferment like Remorantad is a story and nobody wanted it. And right. I was like, I, I need to write a book about this. I was going insane. And I was like, I'm going to self-publish. And that's when I started to work on tear, essentially. So, Ah. Um, so the magazine was an outlet for you to focus, you know, on all of this, right? Tear. Yeah. I, I was consumed by the need to, like, tell these stories. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so we'll get to Tear in a few minutes, but you know, I guess it's fair to say that you know, natural wine has been this you know personal journey for you. Um, you know, certainly what you just said, you know, where you got in a car in the Loire and you know, kind of visited all your guys. You eventually got to Georgia, which is where you know, I mean, it's ancient winemaking. They use amphora um, and amazing people, amazing wines, and you met some significant people there. Um, let's get right into the book. Um, it's, I think I'm accurate in saying that at first it seems like an ordinary story about a woman trying to find herself, you know, her aspirations, you know, her love life, of course, has to be sprinkled in. And also in this case, you know, natural wine, which is significant. But to me, it develops into this, you know, crazy, unlikely story. Um, so first, a few mandatory questions, and I'm more interested about the story. But um, w this book, when did you decide to write it? Um, I, I mean, I was discussing a book about natural wine as early as 2016 with... Okay, so it was always in the... Ether but somewhere it, to maybe it, do. I thought I was going to write it from using Paris as my base. And that was kind of my premise. And I, I was like, okay, I'm going to move there and write about living in Paris and natural wine. And they're like, mm, maybe. And then I was like, I'm going to start a wine bar with my best friend. And that's going to be the story. So that was slightly, possibly more interesting. But when I finally went to Paris, I had absolutely no, nothing solid um, lined up at all. But some of the, the chapters I did write early on, like, like I think pretty soon after I worked Harvest at Domain Moss, I kind of, I tried to write it out because I felt like I just wanted to remember everything. Um, right. Yeah. And the, the Renard chapter as well, I wrote that years and years ago because that time was so like vivid. And so, as you point out, very, like, there is a lot of um, personal element in the in the book and working at Renard. I well, mean, you're, I was... you're 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 <laughs> you know what's the word I'm looking for? I can't young and it, vulnerable sort of... and confused. <laughs> well, yeah, your love travels. You know, nothing abnormal. I mean, uh, men come into your life. You know, some pay attention, some don't. Some are right, some aren't. 
you know, that type of thing. Um, so that's a big part of it. I think Paris is a huge part. You know, we're barely scratching the surface on how important Paris, you know, as a vibe and you wanting to be there is. Um, but a lot of the book, you know, is, is covered around that. Um, you know, I know in the book you mentioned, and there's sort of an interesting story, you know, you wrote diaries and, you know, Anton got, you caught him reading your diaries. Is the book uh, based on those diaries or those were just put aside and, you know, it's different. Oh, I definitely used them to remember things. Absolutely. Um, I mean, they're very helpful in that respect. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way, when I started writing the book, I sort of stopped keeping a diary so intensely. Um, I've started again, but now I kind of write it differently. I think in a way, um, possibly my whole life, keeping a, a journal was a way of working up to writing memoir. I, I love memoir. I read a lot of memoir. It's a, it's an amazing right. and like slightly underappreciated, um, slightly misunderstood genre, but I think it's an incredible literary form. Um, I mean, yeah, like Anais Nin's diaries are some of the best works of literature from the 20th yeah, century. Yeah. I mean, that. I agree with you. I mean, that's why I felt so attached to this book. I mean, I love Victoria James' book. Mm. You know, it was kind of shocking to me in a lot of ways. But I think that form is really, you know, very interesting. You know, and then we have friends that only read fiction. So, you know, who knows what people are (laughs) thinking. Um, So as much as the book is about natural wine and you know its ethos which again i want to discuss too because there's this whole world and community you know this whole sort of eccentric hedonistic obsession you know with natural wine um you know which we want to talk to but talk about but i i think one of the important things about the book is you traveled a lot and you document that travel and um you know, I'm going to throw a few places out to you. And, you know, you had mentioned Mossy. We're talking about Georgia. You wound up in Australia. There were a couple of places in between, like Sardinia. Um, but tell tell the story about how you met Anton and where. Um, and let's get into how that, you know, kind of changed your life. And you gave mm. him a nickname, Yes. Because I think, I think, you know, I think you were, I'll set it up a little, you know, I think you were in Paris, you were in New York, you were traveling, you talked about writing, you know, you weren't making a ton of money, you were focusing on what you wanted. And here you're on a crazy trip to a crazy sort of wine region, Georgia, and you bump into a guy and I guess we could say that was life changing. So talk about that a little. Yeah. I mean, talk about sliding doors. Like what if I hadn't gone on that trip to (laughs) Georgia? Um, That's interesting to me, but I did. I I was invited, essentially an importer invited me and I was on this, I think the Georgian government does fund these, these groups because they've realized how important their wine industry is, um, their overall market. So it was an amazing group of people from all over the world, winemakers, importers, sommeliers, and everybody with some kind of focus on natural wine. And I had just never been in that setting. I'd always been in a setting where 
it was like myself and five or six wine journalists. And I was the weird one because I was right. Like, Cause it wasn't mainstream natural wine. And so right. this was a total reversal. It was so great. And, um, I mean, Georgia, if you haven't heard about it at this point, it's just such an incredible wine culture, oldest continuously producing wine culture in the world. Um, very interesting political and cultural history and great, great wine, amazing, gorgeous wines, natural wines. Right. So yeah, there I am. And I've I'm back in New York, I've got everything ready for my move to Paris. I've sold all of my belongings. Um, yeah. I've got my two suitcases packed and ready to go. And I right. go off to Georgia for this eight day trip. And then I meet, I meet someone. So I call him wild man in the book. It's like, I guess a sort of lit literary device to create distance. It's extremely difficult to write about someone you love. It's very hard. And I think that helped me using that as a device. And anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I, I knew, I knew Anton, I knew of Anton and I knew very little about him. Um, but I knew his wines to me were like otherworldly. Lucy and, Margot are, are his wines, right? Yeah. I'd had them twice and they had both been like life changing wines. Um, and I still like them quite a lot, even though I drink them very Why? Often. I mean, give me the descriptors. I mean, you know, our listeners, you, me, we've drank a lot of natural wines, yeah. but why did those wines make that impression so on I you? I think first of all, something to point out is that my palate was basically educated on natural wine. And that's important okay. because I don't have, I think a lot of people, if they do a WSET course or they are a professional sommelier for 10 years, whatever, and then they discover natural wine, all they're going to notice are the quote unquote flaws, but flaws. Yeah. Like volatile acidity, et cetera. Mousy. Um, well, ma I can't drink massy wine straight up, but, no. but something like volatile acidity to me is actually very interesting in a wine. And my, my palate has just mostly been educated on natural wine. So the taste of a wild ferment is beautiful to me. And, um, yeah, when I bet, when I first tried Anton's wines, he had just started to go sulfur free and his, and that vintage was particularly wild and it had a lot of volat volatile acidity and I just loved them. They were electric. They were absolutely electric. And I remember the Vino Rosso that I had, which we drank in Paris. Um, the scene is described in the book, but it was the way the fruit, it was like the way the fruit presented, it was neither here nor there. It wasn't like big and juicy. It wasn't like sour and acid. It was all of that at the same time. Right. Um, which I guess it's an art to, you know, get wines, you know, to be that way. Um, also, Anton, you know, talk about the fact that, you know, at this point, I think at this point in the interview, people should understand, you know, that you follow this past path of natural wine. You've been writing about it, drinking it. But Anton was this natural wine figure in Australia. And if people remember, Australia was known for these big overblown, you know, Syrahs. And here's this guy pioneering a movement, right? Yeah. He, um, along with a few other winemakers. Right. Not single hand. 
Absolutely. They, they kind of created that path. And um, actually, the, the story is told in the book for the first time in print of, of sort of how they did that and some of those very early moments. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was a hard road. And I think the more I got to know Anton and essentially, I, I think what I have understood over the past seven, eight years is how much people have fought to, to do this, to make natural wine. They have everything against them. They have the wine associations telling them they don't like their wines and not giving them any support. Um, or kicking them out of the Appalachians if they're in Europe. Um, You know, they don't have big investors because nobody does that in natural wine. And they have lots and lots of expenses and yet they do it anyway. And I think it's like for the the sake of making something really beautiful and for the challenge. But um, yeah, I mean, now there's a a big a It's a big commitment. It is, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, you could see in the book, you know, Anton's life and, you know, the life that you, you know, eventually got into. I mean, you really, you got to be all in, right? I mean, it ain't happening unless you're all in. That's right. I mean, it's 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 just, you know, an amazing thing in that sense. So the interesting thing with Anton is, and clarify this for me. I guess when you met him, you knew of him and there was a certain, you know, charisma or attraction initially and that piqued your interest. And what was it by the end of the trip, you guys connected in one way or another, right? Yes, that's right. And he was in a complicated place. He had recently become separated. And I do talk about that in the book. Um, and I think, I think readers will see, you know, it's a perfect storm of two people with difficult, who are in difficult places, finding each other and having to really reckon with what that means, um, if that makes sense. Well, let's talk about that because he was coming off a marriage, you know, after years in the teens, he had a teenage daughter. Um, you know, he was very intensely involved in his business, you know, so that's one side. You, on the other hand, how would we describe this? You know, you uh, you wanted to live in Paris and be a writer and open a wine bar. You seem somewhat non-committal. I mean, I think you were yearning for maybe some kind of relationship, but isn't that where, you know, the big difference was? You were intent continuing on that path, right? I think if you look at some of the early moments in my book where I talk about relationships that I was having, you would say that I was not, I did not have probably enough self-respect and confidence. And um, I think, I think there's a lot of, I mean, everybody can be in that place at some point. That's a normal place to be in your your 20s at some point. But I I think it's partly a product of having lived in New York City and you are kind of surrounded by glamour. It's very easy to compare yourself to others. There's like a sense of competition that I don't think exists in in probably smaller cities. Um, Obviously, that would all be... Even, Even in natural wine. I mean, they don't, yeah. they compete, but they try to help each other. I think people in natural wine are pretty amazing, but it's only one culture within the culture. 
Um, so I think I just was, yeah, I was struggling. I mean, I, I lived month to month for years in, in New York. And I think that like is not such a nice way to live for, for years on end. Um, and I don't know why I thought even Paris in Paris, any- <laughs> I mean, it's amazing how it, it, it's amazing how a person, you know, can live like that. And, you know, that was one of the few things you complained about the least. I mean, yeah, you complained a little, but you know, there were a lot of other things that, you know, were more pressing to you. I just thought that, you know, you were like the most unsettled, settled person, you know, it's just crazy <laughs> to me. Um, so let's get back to Anton. So here you are with that lifestyle, you know, we just talked about it. Here's a guy, you know, coming off a marriage, you know, on a farm, which we described earlier um, in the show. Um, by the end of your Georgia trip, um, he gets to you enough where he has your attention, right? Like, here's a pretty cool guy. Yeah. You know, and he likes me and he he's sort of making other. these more than overtures. You know, I yeah. think he invited me or whatever, you know, but, but so, so what's your thinking? It's like, wait, that's not what, you know, I'm this Paris thing, wine bar. So just tell people what you were thinking then. Um, I mean, I, when I got to Paris, yeah, he was on my mind still and we were, we were in touch and, um, then he very quickly started making plans to come to Paris. And so kind of that entire summer, I was like in touch with him and it's like, you know, waiting for him to come. Um, and yeah, so that, that was definitely an unexpected twist and turn. And it was like a bit, does that, mm, sorry. Yeah, does that distract you enough from not going out much because you're thinking about him or you kind of juggle it all. That's what I was going to say is that it was like surprising to me how difficult it was. Like my, I wanted to be present and enjoy Paris. And right. you know, I, I had dated someone there like previously and I was like excited to kind of keep dating him. And then I was like, I'm just not interested in him anymore. Shit. What has happened? Like I'm supposed to be Uh, young and free and single in Paris, but I was actually really, I was thinking a lot about this guy that I had just met who lived in Australia. I was very confused by that. Yeah. And you had some big decisions to make and, you know, we'll leave it for people to read the book. But, I mean, the relationship develops, you know, where you're really, you know, put on the spot to figure out, you know, what to do with your life. You wanted to pursue your life, but I don't think you met a man like this before. And I don't know if you wanted to let that go, which is a really, you know, important part of the book. I mean, he presented an enviable problem for you, right? It's sort of like, you know, here's a loving guy you know, that'll let you pursue your literary dreams and, you know, be in the wine world or just back that off and be who you were. Right. So what'd you do? You, for a little bit, you kind of juggled it. Well, I mean, when I, it's important to remember when I worked harvest at Domain Moss, like, and I, I won't spoil it too much, but I think there were no indications that I should ever make wine. Like, I was very overwhelmed by the harvest experience and I kind of came off it like, well, I'm never doing that again. Um, 
but yeah, a couple months later, I took my first trip to Australia. Um, and then since then there was like a year of kind of back and forth, like Europe and Australia. Um, I don't know. I like what, to make things emotionally. Were you leaning more towards, you know, this is a guy in a life I want to pursue or you still weren't even as sure then? Um, I think, I think it has, no, it's been a, a, a long period of, of adjust, adjustment. Absolutely. Like people often say, oh, you're living the dream. And I'm like, I don't think anyone understands what it means to live on a remote farm. I mean, this is going to sound sort of like a stupid example, but I haven't had food delivered to the place that I live in like five years. We have to cook every single meal. And it is funny, but I totally yeah. get it. You know, I, it's, <laughs> it, it's, you know, I, I, you're right. It does sound funny, but you know, if you read the book, you'll understand it because you know, way more detail is filled okay. in. Yeah. Um, um, just a big, huge adjustment. And so I like, and I, I mean, I grew up in a suburban culture. Um, so it was just totally unfamiliar to me, but I was really swept away by, I mean, when I first visited the beauty of this place and the beauty of Australia in, in general, um, and but, romanticism. Rachel, but what happened the first winter? Yeah, winter is is hard and I mean, I'm not alone. People do comment to each other here like, "Oh, you made it through the winter." And like someone said to me the other day like, "Do you remember your first winter in the hills? It just rains nonstop. It's a bit like Oregon probably. Um right. it's just a 3 3 months of rain. It's wet and muddy and really nasty. Um, you get very little sunlight. And the past two years have been extra hard because we can't leave. So, right. yeah. That's, that gets tough. And you get lonely. You know, you start questioning everything. All right. We have to take a quick break. We're talking to Rachel Signer. Rachel is the publisher of Pipette Magazine. And she just wrote a book, which is coming out about now, called You Had Me at Pet Nat, a natural wine soak memoir. At the end of the show, we'll tell people, you know, exactly when and where to get it. Um, Rachel, when we come back, I want to talk a little about, you know, your travels. It's sort of a little wine travelogue. Let's talk about some of those places. We talked about them a little. I want to talk about, we talked about Anton and his wine, Lucy Margot. Um, a nice part of this story is you became a winemaker. You have your own wine label. Um, and I also want to talk about the magazine. So we still have a bunch to talk about. So you're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available 
created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Rachel Signer. Rachel is the publisher of Tare. Rachel just published a book that is coming out now called You Had Me at Pet Nat, a natural wine soak memoir. And Rachel, let's jump into this. We'll do the travelogue after. You have your own wine label. I forgot to ask you offline. Persephone, is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Other people also say Persephone, but I Pers- have That's what I initially thought. Yeah, but so I, either I, is I, fine. I, I, took, uh, I, I took a stab at that. So natural wine is an important world to you. You drink a lot. You're intrigued. You know, you ultimately married you know, one of the greatest examples of a natural winemaker. Um, didn't seem like early on in your sights was to become a winemaker, but you become a winemaker. I, I'm not sure if my counting's right, but you could be in your fourth or fifth, fifth vintage at this point. It's sort of an interesting story how you became a winemaker. Um, if, if I know it right, I mean, tell everyone. I mean, Anton played a very heavy part. Being on the farm was important. How did you become a winemaker? Oh, Anton played all of the part. I had no desire to make wine. And he kept saying, you should come you know, stay for vintage, stay for vintage. And um, for whatever reason I did, he he basically said, why don't you make a barrel of wine and like, you can sell it and do whatever you want. It'll be great. And I was like, okay, sure. That sounds like a really good idea. And then I, I ended up making five barrels of wine, my first vintage. Um, it's actually very difficult to do anything with like one barrel. I don't know. So, um, yeah, that's and and I guess a turning point for me was that somebody had a basket press kind of sitting around and I looked at it and I was like I want to use that because and I had never, you know, I think I'm sure I'd probably seen a basket press, but I'd never really thought about that as like a deliberate choice before. It wasn't Describe good. what a basket press is. So I mean, you're pressing grapes, but just so people yeah. know, you know, it's a little out of the ordinary and you were doing it alone. Just describe, you know, what it is. Yeah, it's an old-fashioned um press that doesn't it's not electrically powered. You don't need to plug it in or press any buttons and it has these like wooden kind of staves um, on the outside and that they go in a circle. And then um, on the inside, basically you, you put in the grapes. There's a few different kinds of basket presses, but you put in the grapes and then you put weights on top of them. And then you use a, like a lever to increase the pressure. Um, That's it. It's very and it squeezes manual. the juice out of the grapes. It right. Literally squeezes the juice out of the grapes and then you it you collect it in like a bucket and put it into whatever you're fermenting in. In my case, it was barrels. Um and I was like thrilled the first time I used it because it was I don't know, it just was like 
it was calmer and quieter. I didn't have to plug anything in and press all these buttons and stand around like a dummy while I watched the men, right. you know, operate the machinery. Like I could do it without any instruction. And that was kind of empowering. And I, I was like, that's what I want to do. And um, I kept on doing it. So yeah, I have done four vintages of wine. Um, I've increased slightly, but not really. So I, I made... Uh, 2021, I made about 2,500 bottles. Um, so that's why my wine is like slightly difficult to find. Right. It's it's because it gets exported to a few places. Obviously, I sell like a little bit in Australia. And um, right, yeah, I mean, t- to quickly talk it, about the yes. varietals. I mean, you made a, I think a yeah. Gamay. Yeah. Um, did you make a Sangiovese? Yeah. Um. So there are uh like three main growers that Anton has been working with for a while. And over the years he has, plus he basically, you would say he leases their vineyard more or less. Um, right. And they work together on the farming, organic farming, obviously, but um, he has grafted. This is so amazing about a vine. I mean, I, it still blows my mind that you can literally graft one variety. So you can take Sauvignon Blanc rootstock it grew as Sauvignon Blanc. And then five years later, you can like cut it off, put Gamay on top of it, patch them together and it grows Gamay the next year or maybe two years later. Like that is mind blowing, but th- that's why it's we crazy. have so many different varieties because um, of that work Anton did. So yeah, these growers um, have Gamay, Sangiovese, uh, a lot of Pinot Gris, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, um, quite a bit of Merlot in one place, a little bit of Semillon that was like kind of unpruned for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Um, this and that, That's this okay. and that. And um, there is some Pinot Noir. I made Pinot in 2019. My, my wine's kind there of a, mm-hmm. Isn't there a little Pinot like right on the property, you know, yes. growing wildly? So, yeah. 20-ish years ago, Anton planted that vineyard before he even lived here. Um, he had the, the land first, and he decided not to irrigate it and not to spray it as a sort of experiment. Um, so, um, Didn't he even vines, stop pruning it? At one point, he, he stopped pruning it a little bit. Um, right. But they have not... So some, some parts have done better than others, but we, we have kept one part and we have retrained it so that it will grow as bush vines. So we've removed the wires and they will grow. Like if you've ever been to the Roussillon, if you Google Roussillon bush vine, that's the best example I can think of because they are so glorious in that region in, in France. Um, but I think that they those do quite well and they seem, I think, to be more defensive against mildew. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not, people have an idea in their mind, you know, what vineyards look like rows, you know, with wires and all of that. It's quite the opposite. Um, you're being humble about a couple things. Um, one is, you know, you, you took the press and usually when people make wine, they all gather together and make it. Um, my understanding is you did a lot of this alone, right? And it's the type of thing that maybe you shouldn't do alone, but you you kind of did it, right? 
Oh, never again. I mean, it was a terrible okay. idea. That was yeah. your first vintage when you basically did it alone? Yeah. Obviously, since then, I have made yeah, sure. Okay. Oh, definitely Good. have help. Oh, it is so physical. Like, especially now as a mother, I think I would actually collapse if I didn't have at least one person helping me with the whole process of pressing the grapes. And I mean, the thing is, you have to understand during a vintage, if you haven't done one before, you wake up at 6 a.m., you pick from 7 to like, I don't know, 2 or 3, and then you drive to the winery, somewhere in there you eat, and you start right. processing the grapes. And you do that until 2 a.m. or whatever. It's, it's crazy like, life. Thank very, God it's not yeah. 12 months a year. You would you would pass out, you know? Oh, that would um, not, yeah, not happen. The other but, nice thing was, you know, when Anton said, here, make a barrel of wine. And I guess you were fairly content, but, you know, it seemed to me like he came back and said, hey, try these grapes, make another barrel, you know, where you were just happy to make one, you know, you made multiple wines that first year, which is, you know, it's reflective of Anton's, Anton's generosity generosity and interest. Yeah. I mean, it's just, he he, lives to, he lives to like support people with their dreams, especially if they dream of doing something with organics or with natural wine, like that's really important to him. And that's, yeah, that's what he loves to do. So that's part of the, that's part of, you know, the world of natural wine, you know, where it is much of a community, but my takeaway is, you know, is Anton is that like times four. And I think one of the things that supports that is talk about your trip to Sardinia you know, why you went there, who you visited and, you know, what, what you offered, you know, what came from that, which really explains who Anton is and what the natural wine community is about. Yeah. And, you know, the, the story of Panavino and Sardinia is only like partly told in the book. At some point, a book has to end. Right. But um, right. I, I can tell you what As does this interview. <laughs> I mean, we could sit here for five hours, but like, you know, those are the frustrations. Um, Go ahead. Panavino is a winery in Sardinia that I loved from my New York days. It's a Louis Dresner import in the States. And um, we are friends with his Australian importer. And they're actually like very close. So our Australian importer like normally hangs out there for a couple of weeks every year and just enjoys. And um, so basically what happened is that in May 2018, um, there was a 45 day spurt of rain and it just obliterated. I think because there was no sunlight, the vines couldn't flower. So basically any fruit producing tree or a vine, it has to flower before it will create fruit. And it needs some light to do that. Um, It needs photosynthesis and pollination and it just didn't happen. So there was like zero grape harvest and that that's just devastating financially and emotionally for any winemaker, especially like a small winemaker. But, um, so we went and visited and I mean, gosh, I mean, yeah, John, John Franco, you could really see he was devastated, but, um, we had a lovely visit and essentially Anton kind of in lieu, um, in liaison with Giorgio basically said, you need to come to Australia there's grapes for days. Like we'll find you some organic grapes. There's plenty of room in the winery. You'll stay somewhere and come. And he did. He came the next year. Um, 
it was very, I mean, John, John Franco doesn't travel much. <laughs> it was a big deal. Um, he like, I think had, I don't know when he had left Europe in his life, but not recently. Uh, so it was a very difficult adjustment. Uh, he brought his son, Izako, who's so cool. We had a great time. Um, and then they came back and bottled the wine like later and, uh, it's out there. So they, they did it. They recuperated their losses. They, they made, um, it's amazing. Yeah. They it's made good money. Story. And, um, it, I don't know, maybe when borders open, like they'll do it again for fun, or maybe we'll go there and make wine. Um, if they have a good harvest one year, uh, it was really amazing. Like I, I love, so their first language is Sardo, not Italian, but they, they spoke Italian right. to us. Um, and I just love the Italian language. Like that's what vintage was when I first came to Australia. It was super international and we've lost that these past two years um, yeah. or just the past one year and yeah. probably this coming year, but someday again. Well, <laughs> the, the, the offer was, you know, an incredible act of generosity and support you know, you said it went so well and you made the point that, you know, maybe we'll do it again or go there, you know, to forget COVID for now. But, you know, it's just such a cool thing. And that's part of the community, which is really nice. Um, another interesting stop, and you talked about it a little, but get into it a little more. Uh, the Loire is maybe ground zero for natural wines. And you went there uh, sort of to intern and work a harvest and you worked with the Mossies, you know, which is one of the great winemakers. Um, and I think you found out that interning and making wine's not an easy thing. Talk about, you know, the backbreaking experience that was. Oh, and I didn't even, I didn't even like work every day. I mean, I, I admit this in the book. That well, you were like a guest, but still. I mean, yeah, like I was an intern and I was unpaid. And so because of that, I like, I guess if I felt like doing something else, I could. So there was like one day where I just went with Renee, the the father and the family the mom, to, the father, to, do, yeah. to do the shopping, which for an American right. in France is like very exciting because you go to the market, you go to the butcher. It's very exciting. Right. Yeah. And then I had to like explain to all the workers, they're like, where were you this morning? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, about that. But um, yeah, like it is, it is very physical and very hard. And um, yeah, even I mean, now, just clip, like I clipping take, grapes for hours. Right, oh it's backbreaking. So hard, yeah. Well, Burgundy is even worse. I've done like a day of work in Burgundy before, and the vines are so low down to the ground. Like I think for air circulation, right. it's excruciating. I've seen people use all sorts of things. Like somebody attached like a bench to their to their, to their <laughs> butt. It was like um, everyone's getting creative. Yeah, I think it was That's like funny. duct taped around their waist or something, That's and they—I mean, it was the smartest thing. So they would just sit down and be sitting on right. a, a, a seat, and then yeah, get up and go to the idea. next line. Amazing! So if you ever work harvest, you know, do something like that probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's sort of the power of you know ingenuity and innovation. What makes life easier. Um, because of the pandemic, obviously you haven't traveled much, um, plus you're a mom. Um, 
I, I mm. we talked about if you could travel, you haven't seen your family. It seems like three years, which is you know mandatory. But if you could do a trip, would it be a wine trip? Would it be Paris to see Gaba? I mean, what? Where would you bolt out to? Um, it would. Yeah, it would be both of those things, but we would we would like to have some kind of home base in Europe because it's for a number of reasons. One is to have a relaxed experience instead of uh, like I think traveling with right. a kid is really hard and you need like a place to be where you can cook meals and you're not imposing on your friends and you know your kid can have tantrums and have bad sleeps and whatever. Um, look, so, look at you, yeah. look at you settling down and being sensible Oh, counter well, to the first half of the book. Can I tell you how much I love sleep? Like I'll do anything for sleep. Sleep, <laughs> so, sleep's the most underrated thing ever. And when you have kids at the beginning, it's like a non thing. Um, so yeah. that, that's a cool thing down yeah. the road, maybe to have, you know, a pita terre or some kind of place somewhere. Yeah. Um, and to we'll, like we'll learn see. the language and not be a tourist is kind of the other thing I was going to say. We don't like being tourists at all. Um, we prefer to have a feeling that we are somehow part of a place and kind of really living there. I want to do a thing called the uh, wine list with you, but we didn't talk about your magazine, which I think is a wonderful publication and a very important part of your life. You started a dream and a passion project called Terry. You know, it was a literary wine magazine and beyond, certainly food and all that. That morphed into Pipette. Um, obviously, you know, this was an early obsession of yours. Um, did you start the magazine for your own writing independence. And also we discussed, you know, that uh, natural wines and that whole community wasn't getting the coverage. I mean, was that, was that the early days of terror or did it morph into that? Oh yeah. Also to work with other people and to publish interesting illustration and photography. I think I was interested in being an editor. I mean, it's kind of a natural move when you've been a writer for a couple of years, right. like you it's yeah. And that's what I am now primarily. I mean, most editions of Pipette have one or two articles by me, or in some case, a few cases like none. And then I've just, been the person behind the curtain pulling all the strings. Um, and yeah, that's that's been awesome. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but issue 10 will actually be the final edition. So, so I wanted to ask you about that because I'm not sure where I stumbled on that, if it was in issue 9 or something I read somewhere. So we're on 9 now. Sometime in October, 10 is going to come out, right? And you're saying that's the last issue? Why? Um. Yeah, I I think I just need a, a break, and I I've started to realize specifically what it is. I think I need a break from the commercial stuff. So, like when you're a, a when you run your own publication or your own business, you don't really. I mean, maybe you can afford to have somebody do all the admin and the sales and stuff, but in my right. case, no. You were doing it. There's no yeah. way. So it's really worn down on me. I have a capacity to do sales and admin and number stuff, but it's not what I like doing. Your, your life, your life I, is different now too. 
yeah, my life is different. So every hour that I'm on the computer is like an hour. I w- I'd like to spend more time with my daughter. It's going to be summer here. Um, right. Yeah, I just want to like be outside with my kid. And we have vineyards that need a lot of work. So just taking a, a break from magazine publishing and then... Um, so. Is it a break? I mean, you'll take a break and you think you may find the urge, you know, to reboot it, you know, just issue 11 of Pipette or a different form or you think that may just dissolve? No, I think it could be very interesting to continue in some form, whether that is uh, a website or a podcast or the same print magazine with perhaps a different configuration where I don't have to do the admin. I don't know right, right now. Well, you'll have time to plot that out. Uh, interestingly, it was print only, you know, in a digital world. So you'll worry about that next move. Does, does this last issue reflect the fact that it's a last issue or you put it together just as an issue and then decided it was the last issue? Oh, we knew. I knew for for the you past okay. 12 months. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a strong issue. I definitely tried to like, yeah, I mean, I felt like I couldn't close Pipette without having Matassa in there. So we got a, we got a profile on Matassa. Yeah. That's great. Um, all right. So at the end of the show, we'll tell everyone, you know, where to get it. And I'm very sad to... Um, um, hear that you're stopping, but hopefully, like you said, it'll come in different iterations, if not the same. And then at some point, you're going to have to help me get my collection of 10. Um, so we'll talk about that another time, because I think I'm obsessed and I need to own them all now. But that's another thing. All right. So last, we do a thing called the wine list. But before we get to the wine list, as a parent... And I know how life-changing kids are and everything. Um, And it's just been the greatest pleasure of my life. Um, You witnessed your dear friend Gabba become a mom. And now you're one too. I think your daughter's a couple years old. So motherhood is, you know, fairly new to you. Um, Tell me how the whole thing puts everything in a different perspective. And I'm assuming it's changed your life. Oh, yeah. Um, How? I mean, the perspective is just always about providing her with opportunities. And I I, I actually think I feel um, really good about my life choices, seeing how she's growing up. I mean, she will know exactly where food comes from. And she'll, she'll know how things are made and she'll know, like, I mean, she's not quite at the age where she can help. (laughs) She thinks she helps, Um, (laughs) but she will be able to do that at some point. And I think she'll just be exposed to so much. And I hope that we can also give her the experience of like cities and non-Anglo cultures and, and all of that sort of stuff as well. Um, but she, yeah, it, it's, but, it's but the root of it in Australia at the farm with Anton, you think that's just a marvelous, you know, place and exposure, you know, for a kid to grow up. I mean, I do, obviously, you know, it's different than a kid growing up in Manhattan or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> which crazy. is another amazing way to grow up. I mean, I, I yeah. think, um, 
And there, there are some drawbacks as well. We have a shortage of schools here because we're so rural. Like there's, there's right. sort of no, no high school. A lot of parents end up driving their kids to an expensive private school in the city. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I think um, we just want to have fun with her right now and just really That's what it's enjoy all about. The, the time. Yeah. Happy and healthy. Um, it sounds like a great thing. And it sounds like, uh, um, you know, a very special thing in your life. You know, we discussed Anton and the farm in your life and, you know, having, you know, your child in there just really rounds things out. So that's, that's a beautiful thing. All right. We're going to end on that. I want to, Uh, I want you to answer my wine list. I ask every guest that comes on the show the same five questions. We don't have a lot of time, so I don't want you to dwell on the answers. Um, Be spontaneous. Um, You can give me a few answers. Maybe you've seen or heard the list before. But first question is, Rachel Signer, what are you drinking now? What are you tasting? What are you curious about? What's in the fridge? You know, besides mm-hmm. your wines and Anton's wines, is it friends' wines? Is it even beer? So, what are you drinking now? Um, we got uh, a little bit of Georgian wine the other day. So, we have a Ricazzatelli, um, a 2015 Ricazzatelli from our wine, they're called. Um, right like O-U-R-L wine from Georgia. It's great. It's super intense. Um, And Anton gave me a glass last night without telling me what it is. And I was like, this is so intense. What is this? What's the grape? I mean, is it red, white? Is it a skin fermented? Ricazzatelli is a white grape. Um, This definitely has has skin contact. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I asked that question shows you my depth of knowledge in natural wine, which is more than most people, but nowhere near. All right. So Georgian wine, that's a good one. Uh, anything else come to mind? Um, we have a very small amount of um, Aurelian Lafort's wine, and that's ah. like it doesn't much leave France, so we're quite excited. He's this guy in the Auvergne. Um, I would just drink any natural wine from the Auvergne region. It's a favorite, um, but his are really beautiful. They're very like ethereal. They're not too acidic. They're not tannic. They're just kind of in this in-between place. Um, he does like Gamay and Pinot, a little bit of Chardonnay. Yeah. Nice. Um, I didn't mention, but we post all our guest wine list answers. So the reason cool. we do this is I'll just so say one guests... more because there's so many amazing Go ahead. female winemakers out there. It would be like crazy not to mention one. So um, La Villana. Um, so that's featured V-I-L-L-A-N-A? in. Yeah, double L. That's right. She's in Lazio. Um, in the region north of Rome, um, just by Lake Bolsena, which is volcanic soil. Um, her wines are amazing. They have some slightly local grapes. Um, so they have Percanico, which is like a version of Trebbiano. And yeah, right. her wines are stellar. Um, she's American. Her name's Joy Cole, and she's actually featured in issue nine, so you can read about her. I right saw that. Cool. I saw that. Um, I didn't. I didn't read every article. I will go back to that. Do you know Michelle Smith Chappelle? That rings a bell. Um, 
She was an American. She was a sommelier. I think she worked at uh, Brooklyn Fair. She fell in love with a French guy. She now lives in Beaujolais and makes wines with her husband, David, and she has, I think, her third kid. You know, sound a little familiar? Um, It's just a cool story. All right, second question. You guys are into food. Anton has the restaurant, which we didn't really talk about. You talked about the vegetable patch. He likes to cook. I like to eat, you like to eat. Give me your favorite wine and food pairing. Um, Not something you eat every night, every week, as I always say, but something that just, you know, makes a lot of sense. Okay. We eat a lot of pizza. Um, Okay. (laughs) Who doesn't? Go ahead. Well, we finally figured out how to make it ourselves, and we have, like, a pretty big herb garden, Um, so we just, it's it's really nice to use fresh herbs, and we make our own um, sauce, passata. So um, generally, we love just gamay, absolutely. So Um, homemade pizza and gamay. You think gamay, and I'm not questioning this, you know, with any tone or anything, but you think gamay is a great pair with pizza? That's right. Mm -hmm. See, I like gamay with anything, but I haven't eaten it a lot with pizza. I got to revisit that. Yeah, it's so so nice. Pizza and gamay. Are we? You're, so you're talking a red sauce? Are you talking any cheese on there too? Lots of cheese, definitely. Okay. All right. So pizza and gamay. All right. Um, let's figure this one out. The question is: Your favorite wine restaurant and or bar? Usually, I talk to people. They're from big cities. Um, and I say to them, you know, who's got a good wine selection? Where's their vibe? People who know about it, you know, if it's a natural wine bar, like my friend Jorge at Frenchette, you know, yeah. I want to talk I about, talk about vibe. one in what? Paris. That's Go good. ahead. That's I, so the, the ant, what I was going to tell you was anywhere that comes to mind. Okay. Well, I'll just say one in, in Paris because I think probably some of your listeners are like trying to finally go to Paris after not being able to travel. So um, there are so many places, but one that's very special to us is called La Cave à Michel. And it's just on this tiny, tiny street in the, oh, I guess that's the 10th probably. So okay. it's on the right bank. Um, and La Cave à Michel is like a closet. And behind the bar is like Roman and Yulia, and they're a couple. You talk about them in the book a few times. I do. They're, you, wow, you yes. did read it. Okay. So yep. Roman is like a very amazing chef, but he decided to cook on like a conven- uh, what do you call that? Like a little burner? convection oven, or that's what it is. Like a, just a little tiny gas burner, toaster convection oven. Yeah. And so all of his, he makes like a broth. Like that is served in a bowl and it's just incredible, like a bone broth. And he also serves oof mayo, so eggs mayo, but he does it oh, by right. I forgot right. hard boiling eggs and putting them in front of you on a very interesting wire kind of arrangement with a bowl of mayo. So that's your oof mayo. And it's All perfect. Right. So that's it's so good. That's but, La Cave à Michel in yeah, Paris. Yeah, which means like okay, mi- so that- Michel's cellar is what it means. And it's a joke because there's no Michel. But um, it's so great. It's standing room only. And people like just stand around and you just drink and you have a few snacks and you stay as long as you want. It's great. It's perfect. But the things he cooks so are that- beautiful. That's why we ask you guys these questions to find these little <laughs> gems. All right. Fourth question. 
favorite all-time wine. The question was originally structured to be asked, Rachel, what's the most expensive rare wine you ever drank? Don't care about that anymore. Um, what I care about is what's that wine that was significant in your life? Gateway, life-changing, um, important. And as I read the book, there are probably a few instances that make sense. But tell me that important wine to you to this day. Oh, God. I'll just, I'll say one. Or a couple, you know. Yeah. Can I say whatever one that's you not could... in the book, I think? Because yeah, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't like matter. It's a broken record talking about this one pet nap. But um, I think Kenjiro Kagami's white wine, his Chardonnay, is astonishing. So Kenjiro Kagami is a Japanese man making wine in the Jura. And right. His wines are total unicorns and they are completely natural. There's nothing ever added to them. They ferment in barrels in a small cold cellar. He doesn't like, he, he holds them back for a while also. So they're often released aged or you find them aged. They're just stunning. Um, they're Hard so to get, it. right? Yeah. But sometimes you try those unicorn wines and you're like, whatever, but this one right. is really, really good. Yeah. Um, I've heard of them before. I've never tasted them. So the Kinjero, what is it? Kajami? K- Kagami. K-A-G. Kagami. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it's it. It's Domain de Miroirs. Mirrors. Domain right. of Mirrors. All right. So we're going to post that. Um, all right. Last question. The question is... I talked a lot of Psalms, a lot of winemakers, mm. writers, all of that. You've been around this enough. The question is, recommend the best wine around 15, 20 bucks, 22 bucks, a red and a white. You know, I told you I have kids in their 20s. They can't show up at parties and give, you know, crappy supermarket wine. They can't afford $40 bottles. So how do you wow at like, you know, 15, 18, 20 bucks? Um, I'll take the price tag off for you. Talk to me about what you think the best values in wine are in a red and in a white. You know, it could be a reason like Muscadet is a good wine. That's a great value. What comes to mind for great value wines? Oh, yeah. No, I was the queen of that. That was like my specialty was like affordable natural wines when I worked at Uva. Um, That's right. You worked retail. Yeah, no, I love this question. Do you know what comes to mind is... Um, it's very easy to find. Benjamin Taillandier. You would maybe if I said um, La Gazelle. You have to spell that, it for me. Sure, Taillandier. T a i double l a n d i e r. But does a, I got does it, it ring a bell if I say La Gazelle? Can you picture the label, big red letters, La Gazelle? Yes. I, I know you've had it. It's like maybe twenty bucks or fifteen. It's just it's nice, cheap. Red wine from biodynamic vineyards. It's great. That's a good one. And the fact that it's biodynamic. Give me one more. Sure. I would like to give a shout out to a neighbor called um, Jauma Wines. You've probably seen Jauma. It's definitely, definitely in the States um, for like years now. And Jauma is just amazing wine. And he, I think he works really hard to keep the prices down like Australian wines can be a little bit expensive, but I don't think his wines are too expensive in New York. And they're just um, beautiful. He does some Chenin Blanc. Um, 
occasionally random other white grapes. Like I think Verdejo has been in there and he does like, if you like richer reds, like Syrah and um, Grenache. Yeah. Right. Great stuff. All right. So those are two great recommendations. Um, I will post those. Um, that's as good as it gets. And you're a good a person to recommend those. We have to wrap the show up. I don't even know if we scratch the surface. I could stay on for another two, three hours because in my mind we broached subjects and I like to get into stuff a lot more. But we leave that for the listener to go out and buy the book. Um, you had me at Petnat. So let me do a quick wrap up and then I want to tie everything together where people can get more info and find everything. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the That's Sam at the Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Um, subscribe, you know, hit the subscribe button. You wake up. Wednesday, Thursday, and there's Rachel's interview right there. You don't have to go chase it down. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at S. Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. I always say that's a little confusing, so you can always use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both. We're trying to build a little community on Clubhouse, so follow us there at Ben Ruby. As I mentioned, we will post Rachel's wine list. I will have all the details, the correct spellings, all the information. And if I can't figure out, I will email Rachel. Um, so, Rachel, a bunch of things. If people want to follow you, where can they follow you on social media? Um. It's at Rach Sig, R-A-C-H-S-I-G, both on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. Okay, now let's talk about the magazine, Pipette. Yeah. At Pipette Where Magazine we... on Instagram, not on Twitter. And if people want to get the current issue, the new issue, maybe even try to dig up back issues... They can go to selected like wine store retailers. How, how do people get the it? The best thing is to order it from peepetmagazine.com. Most okay. of the retailers, I mean, they might have some back issues, but I don't really know. Um, unfortunately, we're sold out. Well, of let's issues. concentrate. Yeah, let's concentrate on current. And now that you kind of yeah. said the last one, you know. People may be, uh, their interest may be piqued to see that and own the last copy. So pipette.com? Yeah, pipettemagazine.com. Magazine.com. All right. And the new book is You Had Me at Petnat, a natural wine-soaked memoir. I am assuming Amazon? You sure can find it there, but you know what you can also do? Where should like, we go? Small bookstores? You, you can use bookshop.org or you can literally okay. call or if you can walk in, you can walk into your local bookshop um, or use their website and order it from any bookshop that you normally go to. Like I know Books Are Magic in Brooklyn has it on pre-order. I think most of them do. So wherever you normally buy books... That's where it is. Right. So, Rachel, I led with Amazon. Let's stay in the vein of supporting your local bookshop yeah, and go right. in there and look for it or ask them for it. That's the play. You know, we're natural wine peeps. 
let's let's stay within that uh, mindset. Totally. All right. Then we have your wines, Persephone, um, P-E-R-S-E-P-H-O-N-E. Not easy to get, not impossible. What do we need to know about that? Yeah, so the states And, that and generally- while you're doing that, Lucy Margot wines. Oh, yeah. Um, we have, well, the same importer. Um, and so Who is that? It's Chris Terrell. Um, you oh, can right, find right. Okay. my wines for sure in New York, in California, and in Oregon. Um, so, for example, I know Bar Bandini in Los Angeles, amazing little bar. Um, yes. They've had Persephone almost every vintage. Henry's in Brooklyn, Bushwick, um, amazing, amazing shop. Um, I did actually work there for a little while. It's an incredible spot. So they usually have some of my wine. Um, I think June Bar like has had it before. And then in the, Oregon, the in I would try yep. um, I would try Bar Norman, which is Dana Frank's spot. I would try that and see if they have. Okay. And then I'll check with you offline if there's anywhere else, you know, I'll post it. But, you know, it's a limited run wine. You know, it's coming from Australia. It's obviously not going to be everywhere. You just dropped a whole bunch of places where you can get it. You know, obviously, if you live in Kansas City, it's not going to be a wine easy to find. So those are the places. All right, Rachel, my engineer, Armin, when he sees me in person is going to strangle me because I ran so late, but I couldn't help myself. Um, So I want to thank our guest, Rachel Signer. Um, Rachel, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I hope to see you one day and to taste the wines. I want to thank our engineer, the very, 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 that was five varies, patient Armin. And everyone at the Heritage Radio Network, I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.